Good morning. Thank you, Dr. Dockery, for the opportunity to speak today. Thank you, worship leaders, for bringing us to the Lord in worship this morning. I also want to thank my esteemed colleagues and faculty friends for their fellowship and encouragement over the years. As Dr. Dockery said, we're leaving after 21 years. We didn't expect this, but God has called us to Clear Creek Baptist Bible College, our um, only Kentucky Baptist College supported by the SBC churches of the Kentucky Baptist Convention. So we're going to serve alongside them there and do similar things that I'm doing here. 21 years ago, I was finishing my dissertation at Southern Seminary and Dr. Craig Blazing called me into his office there and he had just been appointed provost here and he uh, was trying, he called me in and he was trying to sell me on the, the idea of coming alongside him and serving here at Southwestern. I said, Dr. Blazing, without a moment's hesitation, I said, you had me at hello. I had no job and the idea of coming to such a historic, impactful place for the SBC and mission, its mission efforts was uh, amazing that God would open the door for us. Over the years, we've made precious friends here, precious friends. Some are still here among us, some have gone on to other places, some have gone on to be with the Lord. We've seen many generations, well, say many, no, a number of generations of students have passed through the halls of Southwestern in our time here. And it's truly been a privilege to serve them, to serve you in feeding the Lord's sheep. Would you join with me in prayer for a moment? Father God, I thank you so much for the opportunity to worship you today in the midst of such a, um, a precious community of believers. Thank you for our hope in you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for our hope in the resurrection that you're calling us to. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Jesus Christ will one day resurrect and perfectly transform his people into, conform, into the conformity of his glorious body. This has been planned from eternity past. A plan for a king, a plan for a kingdom of saints, a plan for redemption in the mind of God from before creation. We see this in John 17 and we see it in 1 Peter 1. God's epic Bible story of salvation in Jesus Christ is presented across the scriptures and across history. Jesus Christ is the promised seed of Eve who will defeat our enemy, Satan. Jesus Christ is the promised seed of Abraham through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Jesus Christ is the promised seed of David who will rule his kingdom eternally. He is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. We see in Revelation 22, he is the central figure and purpose for God's plan of redemption. When I was small, and there was a time, well, we don't have one up here, but I could walk under my mother's piano. She had a grand piano. She's a pianist. I didn't know much. I knew my parents' hugs. I knew playing. I knew running. I knew bothering my sister and bothering our cat. Um, swinging it by its tail one time. It was a terrible thing, I know. I, get hear, I hear that story a lot. But uh, I didn't know things. I didn't know about God. I, I just had a warm, loving family, and the, and the Lord had my parents raise me up to 
go to church, vacation Bible school, sunbeams, all the, the Baptist programs, and I heard Bible stories, and they taught me prayers. Well, there was one prayer that had a significant impact on me. Perhaps you remember it. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. For years I prayed this without thought, just a rote prayer every night. But around the time I turned five, it began to terrify me. Every night in the dark, thinking about it after my parents had left the room. I didn't know the Lord at that time. He was an abstract out there, Bible stories. So let's unpack this. Now I may lay me down to sleep. No real problem there. But I wasn't really the one laying me down to sleep. I would never go to sleep or go to bed as a child if I had the chance to stay up. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Now it began to dawn on me that I was praying to God to do something here, my soul to keep. And if I'm asking him to do it, he might not do it. My understanding of my lostness was starting to creep in as I was hearing the gospel and hearing about um, what Christ had done and about sin and these sorts of things. If I should die before I wake. Now here my five-year-old mind began to understand that I might die in the night. What a way to go to bed. I had already seen a grandmother die at the age of three. I'm not seen her die, but I went to her funeral. I remembered that. And I remembered at the age of five, my grandfather passed away and went to his funeral. And now this was looming in the dark beyond my parents walking out of the room. There's always safety with your parents there. And I know, I know that statistically that's a very small chance for a young child to die, but that's not what I'm thinking of as a child in, when I'm going to bed and reading, saying this prayer. I pray the Lord my soul to take. Well, again, in my five-year-old mind, if I die, the Lord may or may not take me to be with him in heaven. I had no assurance because I didn't know the Lord. I just understood I might die and God might not take me. That was the part I was focusing on. So I didn't know Christ. I didn't know that his, his death and resurrection his, or the epic Bible story, the, the plan for salvation of mankind. But I was beginning to understand something about Jesus and his work on the cross. I just didn't in any way connect it to my personal life. I didn't connect it to um, my fear of dying and lostness, my sin, the things that I did in disobedience to my parents. I didn't connect it to that. My fear was based on the fact that if I died, I might not wake up. That would be it. Yet one evening when I was seven, so this went on for some time, the Spirit of God prompted me to think on these things. I lay on my bed in the dark. I came to a personal realization of my sin, my lostness, and my need for the Savior. I knew I needed Jesus in my heart. I could wait no longer. It was urgent. I climbed out of bed and began walking downstairs to my parents' room. And as I was walking, I began to weep over my sin, the wickedness of my disobedience as a seven-year-old. My parents prayed with me to receive Christ, and suddenly there was a peace in my heart with God. I didn't fear going to bed at night anymore. I had hope in the resurrection and this eternal life offered to us and spoken of in that Bible verse that we memorize, John 3, 16. 
Well, in our passage today, Paul speaks to the church calling us to imitate and stand firm in his resurrection mindset. Now, we know that Paul was writing to the church at Philippi, and he's already spoken uh, in 3.3 of how the true circumcision worshiped God by spirit and uh, glory in Christ Jesus, but no confidence in the flesh. I appreciate Drs. Wilkinson and Skog and Sears in their run-up to our passage um, which here in this passage is truly a summary of what's gone on in the prior verses. In our passage today in 3.17 to 4.1, Paul is summarizing and uh, he's juxtaposing two parts of the three-part goal that's found in verse 10. In 3.10, Paul writes, my goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. So that three-part goal to know Christ to know his resurrection and to know uh, the fellowship of his sufferings. Coming to faith is, is prior to these things. Of course, Paul knows Christ. The first part of his goal is to know Christ more deeply. The second part of Paul's goal is to know the power of Christ's resurrection. But that's a future event. That's something off in the future. What comes between knowing Christ, salvation, and the resurrection, glorification, is sanctification, it's the maturing process to become more like Christ, the setting off of, of our sin and the putting on of Christ. This is the time that we live in as Christians. This is the time when we should be denying ourselves, as the Lord says in, in Luke 9, take up our cross daily and follow him. So in real time, to know Christ is separated from knowing the resurrection by this interim period we're, that we're all in, our, living our lives. To better navigate our lives before death and before the resurrection, Paul has given us his mindset in seeking his goal. Excuse me, I'm a little dry. I had, was, uh, had bronchitis this last week. So Paul asks us to imitate him in his mindset and follow his example. He refers to Christ 23 times in this chapter. Some of these include rejoice in Christ, glory in Christ Jesus. In verse seven, count all past things a loss for the sake of Christ. In verse eight, three times, um, count all things lost for the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Suffer the loss of all things for Christ. Count all things rubbish that I might gain Christ. And verse nine, twice, so that I might be found in Christ with the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. He also speaks of the resurrection 10 times in the verses 10 through 14. And one time in our passage in summary in verse 21. We've already seen, he says, his goal is the power of his resurrection. But in verse 11, he says, assuming I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. And in verse 12, three times, not that I have reached the goal, the resurrection, or I'm already perfect in the resurrection, but I make every effort to take hold of it, the resurrection, because I also have been taken hold of by Christ. And in verse 13, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, the resurrection, but one thing I do, forgetting what's behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, that's the resurrection. In verse 14, three times, I pursue my goal, the resurrection, the prize, the resurrection, promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus, the resurrection. In verse 21, we'll see he talks about the resurrection and the transformation of our bodies. 
Well, in the midst of this, before we get to our passage in 3.15, Paul says, therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way. And to think this way means to know Christ, to focus on his promised resurrection, but do so in the midst of participating in the sufferings of Christ, the fellowship of his sufferings. Paul goes on in verse 17, join in imitating me, brothers and sisters. Well, Paul is speaking to all the believers here at Philippi, both men and women. Paul only uses the word adelphoi, brothers, in the Greek, but it's obvious he's speaking to both men and women. He refers to two women in 4.2 in the following verses, Euodia and Syntyche. But he says, join in imitating me, and that's literally become fellow imitators with me. Meaning, follow my example. Paul Paul uses the same expression in 1 Corinthians 4.16 where he exhorts the Corinthian church to imitate him as their spiritual father who has brought them to faith in Christ. If there's anyone in this life that I could imitate, it would be my earthly father. My dad was the best example of a godly man, a real man that I've ever known. Best example. He was a middle school history teacher right out of college who left that role to serve our country by flying C-130s in Vietnam. Later, he trained men to fly C-130s. He retired as a full colonel and went on to serve in the FAA for 20 years. And as a boy, I gloried in my father. What's, what's not to love about a dad that flies airplanes? I mean, takes me onto the airbase and shows me the, the, takes me on the planes and let me see these things. And oh my goodness. But his character was what really mattered. He was tall, ramrod straight, strong, a leader of men, honest and truthful to a fault, upright, rejecting evil, stern but loving, kind and gentle, with a self-deprecating easiness and laughter about him. He was a deacon and Sunday school teacher. He would spend 20 hours a week in preparation for his Sunday school lesson, and he did this for decades. He taught me to treat others how I wanted to be treated. He he taught me how to respect my elders, look everyone in the eye, have a firm handshake, all the things dads do. Always say yes, sir, and yes, ma'am. Always speak the truth. And that God's word was my authority, not just his word. It was always brought back to God's word. I learned to love the scriptures because my dad loved the scriptures. I have my father's mindset I think like him, at times I speak like him. That sort of gets strange, you know, when you're 20 years old or so and you start to say something or you look in the mirror and all of a sudden it's like, oh, I see my dad there. Um, But I'm a better man for it. I write like him, I laugh like him. By his example, he discipled me. Well, Paul has presented us his goal and his example and his mindset to reach that goal here. In verse 17, he says, and pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. Paul goes on to tell us not to only follow him, but follow those who follow his example and mindset. Pay careful attention is literally mark those who walk this way. Paul is exhorting them to follow mature disciples who follow Paul. I've been raised in the church and I've been mentored by Baptist deacons. Some, I remember an old grizzly steel worker in Pennsylvania when we were, my dad was stationed up there. 
Mr. Edwards, just always gave me a crushing, strong hand grip. Loved him, and he always just stood up for the Lord and stood up for the scriptures and his example of being there and being faithful. Men like that, men of stalwart character, men of compassion, passion for God's word. These are the examples of the ones that we should follow as they closely follow Paul's mindset and example. Paul mentions we should follow the, the example of the ones, the example of those you have in us, he says, who he's including in, in there Timothy and Epaphroditus. And all who exhibit Paul's mindset and example are worthy of following. We don't have Paul, but we have the scriptures and we have his mindset here. And we have the great cloud of witnesses down through history. Christians that have followed his example and who've discipled us. In verse 18, for I have told you, often told you and now say again with tears that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul is referring here not just to the lost, but to the Jews who opposed his preaching and actively opposed him at every turn. This is the only place we see Paul's tears shown, but he does refer to his emotions toward his countrymen in Romans um, nine in verse two, he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for I wish that I could were, myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. Paul's mention of the Jews here picks up his mention of them in three verses two and three along with their legalism and their reliance upon the physical circumcision. Paul had come to Christ on the road to Damascus and had rejected all of this past He'd rejected all of that. But the Jews had not. They walked as enemies of Christ's death and all that it means. This is the same thing that the prophet Simeon prophesied to Mary in Luke 2, 34, where he said, behold, this child is appointed to fall, for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. Paul is here juxtaposing the example of these enemies of Christ with his example. And in verses 19 through 21, as he moves forward, he's comparing the enemies of the cross to the Christians. And he walks us into and out of a conceptual chiasm, a chiastic pattern, comparing in order our eternal end, our God, our glory, and our mindset. So for the enemies of the cross of Christ, as he walks in, their end is hell. Eternal separation from God. Their God is their flesh, their dietary laws. Their glory is their reliance upon the circumcised flesh. Their focus is an earthly mindset on the legalism of the law. Paul next reverses this chiasm and walks out of it, uh, switching to the Christian in contrast, walking out with the pattern mindset, our mindset, glory, God, and final end. So he says in verse 20, as he's walking out of this, this pattern, our citizenship, however, is in heaven. While the enemies of the cross are earthly-minded, Christians should have a heavenly mindset because our citizenship is in heaven and our Lord is there. The Philippians were citizens of an outpost of Rome. As such, they were Roman citizens. Paul wrote to them from the capital and exhorted them to uh, uh, walk in the right manner. And they were used to this sort of thing from looking to the Rome as the the political sphere uh, of getting their orders from Rome. But Paul is using the analogy here 
um, from heaven, that they should be focused on the heavenly kingdom. And heavenly kingdom matters. For the local church is an embassy of the kingdom of God. And Christians, it's ambassadors. Well, our citizenship is in heaven, he says. And we will be the recipients of a kingdom that which uh, Daniel spoke of in Daniel 7, verse 13, where he said, I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and escorted him before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. This, his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not end and will not be destroyed. This is the kingdom of God that Christ preached in the Gospels. Jesus states in John 3 that uh, only the born-again believers in Christ will see this kingdom or enter it. It's a heavenly kingdom, Jesus says. For he says in John 18, my kingdom is not of this world. He bestows this kingdom literally on the, the disciples in Luke twenty-two twenty-nine. It's a kingdom inaugurated by Christ, which will come in power when Christ returns in, in Revelation 19. Jesus also spoke of this after his resurrection in the 40 days between his resurrection and ascension in Acts 1. So in verse 20, Paul says, we eagerly await for this savior from there, from heaven. While the enemies of the cross glory in their circumcision, we glory in our savior who has redeemed us. And we eagerly await his return. When I was young, again, my father is always out flying in, in the Air Force, long trips. Uh, for, one, for a time, he was flying from New Jersey, where we were stationed. He was stationed all the way back to, to Vietnam, ferrying troops and, and material. So he would be gone for a month sometimes. But we were always eagerly awaiting him coming home. Whether it was just a day at the office on base, or it was a long trip, we were awaiting him, and it was a big deal for our family when he came. Whoever heard his, his car arrive in the driveway, or heard the car door slam, or saw him at the door first, yelled, Daddy's home! And we all ran to him for hugs and a kiss on the cheek. Life was good when he was in the house. All things good were possible with him and occurred when he was in the house. And we celebrated his arrival. Well, the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world, 1 John 4. Christ was announced to be the Savior at his birth in Luke 2. He was called Savior because the, the angel prophesied that he will save his people from their sins in, in Matthew 1. And Christ accomplished this at the cross. We can do nothing to save ourselves in faith now all who confess Christ Jesus as Lord and believe in his resurrection are saved from our sin and to eternal life. In Christ, we've entered the kingdom of God. In Christ, we have hope. He ascended from the Mount of Olives on, on that, at the end of that 40-day 40, 40 period. And when he ascended, two angels stated to the apostles that Christ would return in the same manner. He will return to the same place. According to Zechariah 14, he's going to return to the Mount of Olives. And now we eagerly await his return. Who is this Savior? Well, Paul then says, our God is the Lord Jesus Christ. He names him, verse 20. 
While the God of the enemies of the cross is their dietary rules, Jesus is our God. Our Savior's name is Jesus. His name means salvation. He is the Messiah, the Hebrew Mashiach, which means the one who is anointed to rule. And Christ means the same in the, in the Greek, the one anointed to rule. Finally, Paul gets in this chiastic pattern the end for the Christian. In verse 21, he will transform our body, of, the body of our humble condition, into the likeness, conformity of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. For the enemies of Christ, their end is destruction. But our end will be a new beginning. To die is to go be with the Lord, but by his sovereign divine power, Christ will resurrect our weak bodies of flesh and transform them to be conformed to his glorified resurrection body. What a hope we have in Christ. Paul writes of this event in 1 Thessalonians 4.16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Paul writes about this also in 1 Corinthians 15, 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. Remember Paul's goal in 3.10, to know Christ, to know the power of Christ's resurrection, and to know the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed in them to his death. Christians live between coming to know Christ and going to be with Christ. We're all in this sanctification process. As Paul writes again in, in two, 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed in the same image from glory to glory. In this life, we experience the fellowship of his sufferings. And I know that as students, you're experiencing the sufferings and deprivations of being a student for the cause of Christ. Your press professors have all been there. We don't just rise from nothing in, on these ivory towers. I once had a, someone say that to me. You don't know what it's like. Well, we do know what it's like. My wife and I moved to seminary. I left a, a really thriving uh, youth ministry position that paid well. And uh, we came to seminary and we used all of our savings from our house to live because I didn't have jobs. And finally, the money, we ran out of money and then Church folks, without being asked, started sending us money, and for a few months, they met our needs, and it was exactly what we needed, and then that stopped, and I got two jobs that made it all work, and we lived below the poverty line. Work was hard. Finances were difficult. It felt like we were in a financial vice, and every time the the car broke down, or there was a sickness and a doctor bill, or the children needed shoes because they're growing. Every time it felt like someone was cranking that vice and the pressures of being a student, the pressures of, the, of being here. 
But looking back, God took care of us and he met every need. We learned to rely on him in this process, in these sufferings. We grew in the Lord and we were equipped at seminary. Today, I wouldn't give up those struggles for anything. We saw God meet needs. And my goodness, when the, the stories we have now of God's goodness to us at seminary and how he provided for us, these came with the joys with sitting under professors in the classroom, hearing them speak and going to coffee with them and eating lunch with them in the cafeteria. Those are things you don't get unless you're here. And the joys of sitting down one day in class and this guy that's sitting next to me becomes my, one of my best friends. Or the guy that's teaching me now, it, I've been talking to every month for the last 30 years. Such good, precious friends. Because we were here in going through those struggles that you're going through. In the midst of life's struggles, think this way, Paul says. Keep your heavenly citizenship in mind. Eagerly await the return of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lay aside all in this life for the goal of the resurrection promised in Christ. It's kind of hard to go astray if you're thinking of those things. In 4.1, Paul addresses them again. So then, my dearly beloved and longed-for brothers and sisters, my joy and crown... In this manner, stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Paul loved the Philippians the way, and I'll say this, your, your professors love you, each and every one. We pray for you to get here for your arrival. We labor over your equipping. We love you with the love of Christ while you're here, and we disciple, we mentor we send you out in joy at graduation with great hopes and long to hear of the good results of your ministry. We hope for you the future crown of glory that Paul talks of in 1 Peter 5, given to those who as good examples shepherd the people of God. Two weeks after I graduated from Baylor University, I was at my parents' home in Georgia and I was getting ready to set out on my own. I was headed to, a, to Missouri, to be a part of a discipleship ministry there. I was gonna work there and then go through the ministry. My father sat me down in the, um, the family room and he had a serious talk. He said, I wanna talk to you. He gave testimony to the glories of serving Christ in his daily walk. He exhorted me, he admonished me and pleaded with me with tears in his eyes and running down his cheeks. Serve Christ. Serve Christ, never falter in following after Christ. Whatever happens, serve Christ. Remain lashed to the cross, serve him. I promised him then and have striven, however imperfectly, to do so to this day. I call upon you to imitate Paul's resurrection mindset. Stand firm in seeking Christ. Stand firm in the midst of the suffering and hardship that come in this life. Nothing is greater than the, the hope, the future hope of, of the resurrection. Stand firm in the hope of the resurrection. 
Stand firm in the Lord, as Paul says in 127 here in Philippians. Stand firm in one spirit, one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel. This is not our home. We get settled in here, don't we? But this is not it. Our citizenship is in heaven. Keep the resurrection in mind. It's coming. It will be soon. Eagerly await our Savior, Jesus Christ, who will one day perfectly transform and conform us to be like him. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for the hope in you, Lord Jesus. Thank you that you're transforming us day to day, moment by moment, into your image. Father, I ask that you would help us to have the resurrection mindset that Paul mentions here. I ask that you would help us to keep our citizenship in heaven in mind, that we might seek the goal of the resurrection, that we might be conformed to you. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.